0: As you can see on the board today, we're going to be doing somewhat of a character study. We're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament, certainly one of my favorite women of the New Testament, even though we don't know a lot about this woman, as we'll see. That is the woman that we often call Mary of Bethany. Mary's a very interesting woman. She's a woman who Jesus promised her story would be told from the time that she lived until the time that he returns, essentially. And while there's not too many stories about her, she's not what you might call a major character or even a main character in the New Testament or even the life of Jesus, the few times that we do see her pop up in the gospel accounts teach us some incredible lessons about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Christ, and so I hope that as we study her simple and sweet story this morning that we have some things that we can learn and apply in our own lives. Now we call her frequently, or you might hear her referred to frequently as Mary of Bethany. And that is just a kind of a term that helps us identify. Of course, there are several Marys in the New Testament. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene. And we have the woman that we're speaking of this morning, Mary of Bethany. And there's actually another one or two Marys that are at least listed or mentioned. So it can get kind of confusing who you're speaking of in the New Testament when you talk about Mary. But we're talking this morning About Mary of Bethany. And there's only a couple of things that we know about her as far as her setting, her background, and those types of things. First of all, of course, we do know that she's from Bethany. In John 11, verse 1, he tells us that Bethany was where she lived. That was her hometown. That's why she gets this moniker of Mary of Bethany. And the only other thing that we really know about her is that she was the sister of of Lazarus and Martha. There's a, she is found with stories of Lazarus and Martha in a couple of places. John tells us specifically that she was Martha and Lazarus' sister. Now, we know nothing of their parents. Their parents, we, we don't hear about them in the Gospels. We don't know if any of them are married. There are some that have supposed that Martha or Mary one might have been married to the man known as Simon the leper. That's the house at which Mary performs her anointing of Jesus. Um, That's a speculation that some have, but we're not told that for sure. And so we don't know if Mary and Martha were married or widowed or had never been married. Uh, We don't know if Lazarus was married. We really know very little about this family. We also don't, Now, some speculate that they were wealthy, that they might have been rich. They hosted Jesus in their homes uh, at times. Uh, In Luke chapter 10 that we'll look at, we're told that that Jesus and his disciples were in the house of Martha. And so maybe that indicates that she was wealthy or the family was wealthy uh, and that they could host people. Of course, in the scene where Mary anoints Jesus, we're told that she has an alabaster box or an alabaster cask with very costly ointment. In fact, Judas and the disciples say that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's basically 300 days wages. That's almost an entire year's work that she possessed of this perfume, of this ointment. And so some have said, well, she must have been wealthy to have that. Uh, And so that's possible, but those things are a bit more speculation. Really, all we know about this woman is where she lived and who her brother and sister were. And yet, With that being all we know, we see three scenes in the New Testament of this woman that are all very, very impressive. The places that we read about her are one of the very famous stories that we know about her. The story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. We're going to read this one in a moment. In fact, we're going to read all of these stories. This is chronologically the first time that we meet uh, Mary and Martha in their stories in the life of Jesus. Then we see Mary again and Martha at the resurrection of Lazarus that's recorded for us in John chapter 11. That's again one of the most famous stories perhaps of Jesus' life and ministry is raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we'll see Mary briefly in that story. And then right after that, John tells us, about her anointing of Jesus's feet and that story is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. And now I'm just I'll say this here we won't spend a lot of time on this. Some commentators debate whether what's recorded in Matthew and Mark is the same account or same event as what John records in John chapter 12. I'm convinced that they are. And that these three gospel records are about one and the same event. Even though there are a few differences in the stories, those just fill in a complete picture because there's far too many similarities of those stories, really, for them to be two different events, I think. And so Matthew, Mark, and John all record. Uh, that event. And now, with that being the case, one of the things that's interesting is that even though Mary is not told about a lot, she's not, you know, someone like John or Peter or the other apostles, and yet we find her in some form or fashion in every one of the gospel records. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have at least something about this woman. And so this morning what we're going to do, we're going to read through these three events, these three three accounts, and see some of the lessons, the examples that Mary provides for us, and what we can learn to be like this woman as we seek to follow Jesus. So let's go first to Luke chapter 10. We'll read verses 38 through 42. which will not be taken away from her. This is the first time that we meet again chronologically Mary and Martha in the story of the life of Jesus. We know not when they met the Lord or how they met the Lord. Of course, they live in Bethany as we learn in John chapter 11, which is not very far from Jerusalem. In fact, it's a very short walk during the last week of Jesus' life when Jesus is attending Uh, Jerusalem, right before the Passover, right before the crucifixion. He's actually staying in Bethany, and he's going back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem each day. So it's a very short walk from this little town of Bethany to the big city of of Jerusalem, and so perhaps while Jesus was, during Jesus' ministry, maybe one of the early times he was in Jerusalem, or maybe later on during his ministry, perhaps they met sometime while he was there in Jerusalem, or in the Judean countryside, but wherever they met him, these people became disciples of Jesus, and they didn't just become disciples of Jesus, as we're going to see in the story of Lazarus, they became friends of Jesus. Lazarus was said to be the Lord's friend. John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so these aren't just some distant followers that have liked some of the things Jesus said and that have enjoyed seeing some of his miracles. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close to Jesus. They were friends. And maybe they developed that friendship because Martha and Mary and Lazarus welcomed Jesus into their home. You know, we can speculate all day about how that friendship grew and where that all happened. We don't know for sure, but we do see a hospitality by these sisters and Martha in particular. Even though Martha gets distracted as we see in this story, it is noted specifically that it was Martha who welcomed Jesus into her house. And I don't think we should overlook that. I think that When we look at what, when we're going to see what Mary's doing in the house, which is very important and really the crux of what we're going to look at in this account, part of the reason she's able to do that is because Martha has welcomed Jesus into the home. She's shown hospitality. She's showing a care for others. She's showing a serving attitude that wants to take care of the needs of others and make a welcoming environment. And that is a wonderful thing that Martha is doing. And so she has Jesus come into the home with his disciples. That could include at least probably the 12. And so there's quite a group of men that have come into their home that she's trying to make comfortable, that she's trying to feed. And as Jesus is there, I just kind of assume this is what probably happened most times when Jesus came into somebody's home and was staying there. As some of the women may have been fixing the meal and taking care of things, Jesus sits down and he begins to talk. And he's talking with his disciples. And he's discussing with them. I don't know that it was just a sermon that Jesus was giving. But in the typical Jewish fashion. It was probably a discussion. That's how Jewish teachers and rabbis frequently taught. Was discussions with their disciples. But imagine how incredible that must have been. To be in this house. To be maybe a disciple. Or maybe one of the people in the house. And you get to just be in the living room so to speak. And there's Jesus. And he's teaching. I had the great privilege of growing up in a preacher's house. Um, and you don't have to be in a preacher's house to do this. But typically we hosted the preacher. When we would have preachers for gospel meetings. Dad and mom would kick me out of my bed. And give that room to the preacher. And I had to sleep on a pallet somewhere. But the preacher was in our house. And I can say I loved that. I was a kid. You can sleep about anywhere. I don't like getting kicked out of my bed now. But as a kid I really did enjoy having the preacher in our home. and. We'd go to church and all that. But when we'd come home or during the day, getting to sit and listen to the preacher talk with dad or dad and mom, to hear their stories, to hear them teach. In fact, I can say one of the earliest recollections I have of wanting to preach when I was a kid was listening to men like Jerry Dickinson, who we have in a meeting, Lord willing, later this year, and Carl Johnson and others that would talk and discuss, not in some formal high and mighty way, but just talk with us. That it was such a blessing. And by the way, I'll just give that as kind of a nudge to the congregation. Um, I hope that we get to keep the preacher on our home some, now that we're in our house. But I also don't want to hog that. And I would encourage any family here that would be interested in hosting the preacher. That's not always the easy thing. I know it's a scary thing. But when you get to sit with someone who has devoted their life to the gospel, especially an older man that has been doing it for some time, there are some great blessings for you, for your family. But as wonderful as those things are, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus in your home. And He's teaching and He's talking. Maybe He's telling stories. But something happens in this scene at Martha's house. Martha's got all this influx of people. If it's like any normal day, there's probably others that know Jesus is there. They're trying to crowd in also. And so she's got all these guests and she's worried about being a good host. She's a good woman and she wants her guests to be comfortable and fed and taken care of. But that's busy and that's hard work. Sometimes we men overlook how busy our wives and the ladies may be as they try and humbly serve and make hospitality a good thing but martha is so busy with this that she gets distracted she's not focusing on the fact that the lord is there she's focusing on these earthly things and they're good things but they're earthly things and as she's getting distracted and flustered she notices that her sister mary's not helping out her sister mary is just in the other room sitting with all the other disciples Listening to Jesus. I'm sure all of us can commiserate with Martha, especially if we have a sibling, perhaps we're, we were, or perhaps we've been in a group project and we feel like we're doing all the work and our brother or our sister isn't helping out the way that they're supposed to. That's frustrating. That's discouraging. And so Martha begins to get upset. And she even at some point inserts herself and takes Jesus to the side it would seem. And she says, Lord, do you not care that Mary's not helping me? I'm here busy. I'm doing all of this stuff. But I'm doing it alone. Tell Mary to come help me. But Jesus simply says to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary and Mary has chosen the good portion." He says, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Now with that, what what do we see about Mary? Martha's the one that's kind of the focus. Martha's the one that speaks. But there's a wonderful example from Mary in this story. First of all, just the simple fact. This is very simple. This isn't anything profound. But she listened to Jesus. She wanted to sit and learn from Jesus. Now, Martha was doing something good. And she was busy doing that. And there are a lot of times that we may be doing things that are okay, that are acceptable, they may even be to some degree good, and we get busy with those things. And we miss out on something better. Now, I don't know what Martha did after this, but I can't imagine that she did anything other than stop what she was doing and sat down beside her sister. And listen to Jesus. If Jesus was in your home. Ladies especially. Which do you think you would look back on more fondly. 10, 15, 30 years later. That you hadn't heard more than just a glimpse here and there. As you went in and out of the room. Now you knew he was well fed. And you knew everyone was comfortable. But you didn't hear anything he said. And that's your memory. Or you could look back on the memory. Remember, you know what? We didn't eat just a big fantastic meal. And it was just kind of simple. But I remember listening to Jesus all night. Which one sounds better? Which one sounds more important? We can understand that. But How often do we take the time in our busy lives filled with all of the good and acceptable things that they may be filled of... How often do we choose those things instead of taking some quiet time to sit down and just sit at the feet of Jesus, read about him, learn about him, walk through his life with him in the gospels, to listen to him taught about? How often do we want to sit and learn at the feet of Jesus? And I want to make a special point here again to the women There's something very important in this story that is not stated explicitly. But that terminology that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, that is discipleship language. In the context of a rabbi, of a teacher who has followers and disciples, that language is speaking about those specific people that are following a teacher. What we consider typically James and John and Peter and Andrew and the 12. And yet, Mary is there doing what the disciples do when it comes to learning. Now, she is not an apostle, and she won't be made an apostle. She's not going to be a leader in the church publicly. But she has every much right to sit and learn at the feet of Jesus as Peter and Andrew, and James, and John. Jesus did not discourage Mary from learning from him. In fact, he encouraged it, and he blessed her for it. Sometimes in the church, we focus a great deal on young men, and we do need to teach young men. But we focus on young men because we want them to become teachers. And we want them to become preachers. And we want them to become church leaders. And that's wonderful. We need to raise up our young men to be teachers and preachers and elders in the Lord's church one day. But sometimes we focus on teaching and encouraging young men. And we want them to learn Greek. And we want them to read commentaries. And we want them to learn how to study the Bible. And we never teach our young women any of those things. We don't teach them how to study. We don't encourage them to really learn. We don't encourage them to be scholarly. I'm not saying you have to be a scholar. My point is this. It's just as important if you are a lady in the Lord's church. To study your Bible. To read your Bible. To know how to do those things. And to learn from Jesus as the master. As it is for any man in this congregation or in the church. Now, you're not going to take that studying and that reading and get up in the pulpit and preach publicly. But then again, neither will all of the men. James says, be not many teachers. Studying the Bible isn't for men to get up sermons. Studying the Bible is to learn from Jesus how to be like him. And that's just as important for you as a woman as it is for me as a man. And that we truly are equal." So don't be discouraged from learning from Jesus. Mary wasn't. And Jesus said that she had chosen the good part and the good thing by learning. And that also indicates that she understood what was most important. I don't think that Mary was lazy. I don't think Mary just didn't want to serve. I think Mary recognized the opportunity we talked about. I can busy myself with good stuff. Or I can sit with the best thing possible. Which one's best? I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. Choosing between right and wrong is important, but ultimately not necessarily that difficult. There are a lot of people that never step foot in a church door that can choose, in most cases, between right and wrong. Most people know to choose to not kill someone. They don't have to go to church for a long time to know that murder is wrong. Most people know that lying is wrong, even though they may justify it. People know that it's right to tell the truth, and it's wrong to tell a lie. They know that because they don't ever want to be lied to. People know the difference between right and wrong, typically. Now, the law instructs us on that even more. God's Word clarifies what is right and wrong, so we don't misdefine it. But typically speaking, we can choose between right and wrong. I don't think most Christians struggle With choosing between right and wrong nearly as much as we struggle with choosing what is best. Is it good to go to work and work hard and make an income for your family? If you're the leader of your home, absolutely. In fact, as a Christian man, that's part of your responsibility. But which is better? To work 70, 80, 90 hours a week and make a really nice paycheck that really makes your family comfortable and pays for all of your kids' things. That pulls you away from the house and you can't be an example and you can't be a teacher and you're not able to be around the church very much. But you're doing something good. Is that better? Or would it be better to do a job that pays the bills, supports your family, may not make you rich. But it gives you the time and the ability to be a father, to be with your children, and to teach them, to go to church with them, to sit at the feet of Jesus with them. Which one's better? Which one's best? You can take that and apply it to so many things in this life. What do we choose to do with our time? What do we choose to do with our money? What do we choose to do with our talents? Not always about what is right or wrong. Sometimes we need to grow in the ability to choose the good portion. And the blessing of that is when we choose what is best. When we choose the good portion. We are vindicated by the Lord. Mary was. Mary was criticized. This is something interesting. In two of the three stories that we read about Mary. She was criticized by people. She faced a lot of criticism. But she was always vindicated by the Lord. She didn't have to defend herself. In fact, she never speaks up on behalf of herself in these stories. But she's vindicated by Jesus. Choose the good portion. And get the Lord's blessing. But let's hasten on to the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. We read about this in John chapter 11. We're not going to read all of the story because it's too long for our time here. But in the first 16 verses... We read about the fact that Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus. He's away somewhere, but they send a messenger to him to say, Lord, your friend, your beloved friend Lazarus is sick. And it's a very serious illness. Now, Jesus, of course, tells his disciples, if you remember, this isn't going to lead to death or it's not going to end in death. Even though Lazarus dies, Jesus knows what's going to happen. But then he waits a while and he delays in his coming. And while he delays, Lazarus passes away. And so he goes back with the disciples, and he tells them it's time to go, for Lazarus is asleep. And they say, well, that's good if he's sleeping. And he, somewhat frustrated, has to explain to them, no, it's not literal sleep, he's dead. And they're worried. They're saying, well, now, Lord, the Jewish leaders are trying to kill you. We probably shouldn't go back there right now. It's really sad about Lazarus and all. But Jesus says, we're going back. And Thomas Interestingly enough, who is so often dubbed Doubting Thomas, I think unfairly, is the one who speaks up and he looks at the others and they say, let's go and let's die with him. And so they march off back to Bethany where Lazarus has passed away. Now there's something interesting here. When we're told that Jesus delayed in verse 5, John says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Did you know that there are only two women in the New Testament that we're told specifically that Jesus loved. It's these two. It's Martha and Mary. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't love and care for the others. But Mary and Martha are the only two women. That we're told about this kinship and this relationship With Jesus. I think that says something very special. About these women. Now that's kind of interesting. Because Jesus loved these women. He obviously had a special relationship with this family. And yet he let them go through a very difficult hardship. He could have spoken a word. And Lazarus would have been healed. Perhaps he could have left sooner. And he could have healed Lazarus. That's what Mary and Martha both thought. But he let them suffer. He didn't give them exactly what they thought they wanted. Well, how is that loving? Well, in the end, Jesus was going to work a much greater blessing. He was not just going to heal their brother. He was going to show them and all of his disciples from that point all the way forward. So we can learn from it too. That Jesus isn't just here to fix things temporarily. Jesus's mission is to bring back life. Not just heal sickness, but to bring life. A full restoration. What an incredible blessing that was. But then after that, verses 17 through 27, we read about Jesus' conversation with Martha. Martha is at the house. She hears that the Lord has come to Bethany, and she rushes out to meet him. And there's a beautiful little discussion there that we don't have time to get into. That's not our focus. But she talks with Jesus for a while. And then she goes back, and we pick up in verse 28. and says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Of course, after this, Jesus has them take him to the tomb. He tells them to roll away the stone, and he calls Lazarus back from the dead. But this little scene with Mary, it's simple, it's short. But again, I think we see some wonderful lessons from this woman first of all the simple fact that she brought her grief to the lord now in all three stories about mary we find her at the same place at the feet of jesus the first time we meet her in luke chapter 10 that we just saw she was learning at the feet of jesus this time we see her weeping and grieving at the feet of jesus again jesus had let this happen And Jesus lets us face sorrow. He lets us face grief and hardship. That's part of our existence in this world. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's absent. It doesn't mean he's powerless. It means he is in control and he lets it happen. But it is upon us to make the choice to still recognize his sovereignty, his lordship, and to trust in him and to bring our grief to him. Where is the best place to grieve? Loved ones are nice. Family is helpful. But there is no greater comforter than Jesus. Now, Admittedly, you and I do not have the wondrous privilege that Mary had here. We cannot literally bow at the feet of Jesus. We cannot seek his physical presence. But he is the same Jesus. He is the same Lord that she went to. And he hears your prayers and your cries just as much as he heard hers. And he is willing to listen and he is willing to care and he is willing to comfort if we're willing to go to him and grieve to him. The problem is, grief is such a danger. That's why Satan uses it, because grief is a wonderful distraction. Grief is a powerful way of causing people to look away from Jesus and to look at their immediate circumstances. It causes doubt. It causes anger. It causes a host of problems. That's why Satan uses it. That's why we have to prepare. That's why we have to spend time learning at the feet of Jesus so that when grief comes, when heartache happens, we know where to go. We don't abandon Jesus. We don't get mad at Jesus. We go to Him. Now, Mary may have had, in our mind, every reason to be upset with Jesus. And some people think that her and Martha were. Both of them say the same things. They say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And admittedly, that sounds almost accusatory. That sounds like maybe she's angry. And she's saying, if you would have come, we wouldn't be here. I don't think that's what Mary's saying. I don't think that's what Martha was saying. What I think is happening in both of these scenes is they are expressing their trust in Jesus. We don't see anything about anger from these women. In fact, if you go back and you read the conversation between Martha and Jesus, you see that. She makes a great confession about who Jesus is. A messianic confession. And here's the lesson. Jesus hadn't given them what they wanted. Jesus hadn't taken the heartache away at this point. He hadn't saved their brother. And they still trusted him. Now I don't think they're expecting at this point Lazarus to be brought back right now. But not getting what they wanted doesn't mean Jesus isn't the Lord. Many people are willing to follow Jesus as long as they get what they want long as their life is good and their life is happy but when Jesus doesn't give them what they want when God doesn't answer their prayer in the way they want they get angry and they give up she still trusted in Jesus's power she knew Jesus could have saved his brother her brother but for his own reasons he chose not to now, that doesn't take away the sting and it doesn't take away the heartache. And yet, she still goes to the very one and weeps at his feet. And he's the one that let Lazarus die. That's a pretty powerful picture of trust and faithfulness and commitment from this woman. And you know what happened? Jesus shared her grief. Now, Martha had to be heartbroken too but Jesus has a very challenging discussion by the way. He kind of has a back and forth with Martha. But we're told that when Jesus sees Mary weeping and the other Jews but especially Mary it changes something. In fact the, the text says that He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's one of those translations. I don't know. It it wouldn't sound right to translate it literally. But that phrase, deeply moved. That phrase actually means indignant. It means warmed. It's actually a word that refers to anger. Jesus is not angry at Mary. He's troubled. He's angry, but what is he angry at? I think what we have here is the author of life facing the enemy he came to destroy. Now he's going to suffer death himself for us. But in this moment, with his friends, with his loved ones, with this family whom he loved, as he is gazing upon the heartache and the brokenness that sin brings, because what does sin bring? Death. Why are people suffering and dying? Because sin has entered the world. And as he is here, and he is experiencing this, and he's experiencing that heartache and loss, his friend has died. And he sees how it's ravaging the lives of Mary and Martha. It moves him to outrage. This is his creation. These are his people. And they are brokenhearted by the ravages of sin. And he shares their grief, he shares their anger, he shares with them. What a wonderful thing to know that Jesus cares that deeply about our hurt and our sorrow and our loss. Now when, if we've ever lost someone, especially tragically, we've probably felt a degree of anger. And we may think that that's not appropriate. I think that's absolutely appropriate if we direct the anger in the right way. We don't get angry at God. So who are we angry at? Might be angry at ourselves for our part in the play. We're angry at sin. We're angry at the enemy. In fact, that time when we feel that anger of loss... That may be the closest that we can come as human beings to the wrath of God of righteous indignation. When we suffer loss, that's what sin does. It separates and that angers God. And as Mary is weeping and as Martha is weeping, it just reinstills his anger at what sin has done. He's sorry. He's grieving. We're told later that he weeps with them. But he shares in their grief. We may not get to see this. We won't physically get to see Jesus weep. Like Mary did. We won't get to see him. Work some powerful miracle. But what a blessing to know. At least some comfort to know. That when we are suffering the hardships of life. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Jesus understands, he's experienced them himself, and he is with us, and he shares in that, and he cares for us. And he has done all that he can, and all that he needs to help us. Now in this situation, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but that anger at sin... That sorrow over the loss that sin has brought. That didn't just cause Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the very motivation that is pushing Jesus forward to Jerusalem. To die on a cross himself. To overcome that enemy. To defeat death. To defeat Satan. To crush the head of the serpent. So that he can resurrect and bring life. What a wonderful thing. When we truly look to Jesus. Mary helps us see that. In this story. But lastly, let's go to the final story. We're going to read Mark's account. And these words in red here, what I've done instead of reading two accounts, I've inserted some of the details from John. So what you see in red, those are actually from John's gospel, but the vast majority here is Mark. And it says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, that's Mary according to John, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And John tells us, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This is the week before his crucifixion. He is staying at Bethany. He is at the house of Simon the leper. Again, who exactly that is? There's debate, and we can't really know for sure. But Lazarus is there, according to John, and Mary and Martha are there. In fact, I think it's John tells us that Martha was serving, like Martha seemed prone to do. And here's Mary doing something out of the ordinary again. Something, again, that's going to bring criticism from others, but something that's going to receive a blessing from the Lord. While they are reclining at table, Mary comes and she has this alabaster box or kind of a a container of some type. And this alabaster is a very precious mineral in and of itself, but it contains this perfume, this fragrant perfume that was very costly, as I already mentioned, uh, almost a year's worth of wages for this one alabaster flask of ointment. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that she anoints his head. John tells us that she anoints his feet. That's not a contradiction. She anoints the entire body of Jesus. She anoints him from head to feet. And then, as John tells us, she takes her hair, which means she had to let her hair down, which would have been in some ways scandalous, but humiliating in that culture, for a woman to let her hair down in front of anybody other than her husband. But she lets her hair down, and she wipes his feet Now, that was a humiliating posture. That's the posture of a servant. That's the posture of someone very lowly in mind to be using her hair to wipe a person's feet. And we may wonder, why is she doing this? That's one of the strangest questions about this story. Why is she doing this? But we have an answer. Jesus says, she's doing this for my burial. Now, some people think that she didn't know that. I disagree with that. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. Why was she anointing Jesus for burial, though? Well, because she had listened. Jesus had not been silent to those who followed him about what was coming. He had told his disciples multiple times that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be offered up, and he was going to be killed. But then rise again. Now, his disciples didn't like that message, Peter said, Peter even rebuked him for it. And they they couldn't they didn't understand, not because they couldn't understand, I think they didn't want to understand. They didn't like it. A lot of people do that, right? We don't like what Jesus says. It may be very plain, but we don't like it, so we just kind of figure a way to not understand it. But here, simple Mary, who says so little, she had listened. And she knew the time was coming close based on what Jesus said that he's about to give his life. And perhaps she realizes this is the last opportunity. She may not get the opportunity to give him this great gift afterwards. And so she anoints him for burial beforehand. This is an act of service. I'm sure she didn't like the prospect of her Lord dying. But she worshipped him in this way. Based on what she had heard. Based on what he had said. Worship is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. When it's done in accordance with what Jesus teaches. Some people try and take this story and basically indicate that, you know, she had no pattern to do this. And therefore, that teaches us that worship is just a beautiful thing. Worship however you want. That's not what's happening here. She is worshiping in accordance with what Jesus has taught. She's serving in accordance with what Jesus has taught. And that's what Jesus wants. If we want to worship Jesus, if we want to come to his feet in service and worship, then we have to listen to him first. It's not a matter of what I want to do and how I feel I can worship Jesus. It's what has he taught. As I've already mentioned also, as she worshiped, she did so humbly. This is a very lowly posture. In some ways, this is a very humiliating posture for her. But she's not worried about what she looks like in the eyes of Judas or Peter or John or whoever else is there. She's worried about serving Jesus. You know, when we worship and when we serve and we live out our faith, there are going to be people that think it's strange. There are going to be people that mock us. There are going to be people that criticize us. There are going to be people that oppose us. Sometimes, even the very people that should be on our side, the disciples should have been. The key is we humbly serve Jesus. Whatever others say, however others oppress, or mock, or criticize, We listen to Jesus and we serve him. Another thing that's beautiful here is she worships sacrificially. This was no mere trifle that she gave to Jesus. Maybe she was wealthy. But even if she was, I think that this had to be a costly gift. Maybe she wasn't wealthy like we assume. Making this a very costly gift to pour out and give to Jesus. Do you think she was worried about that? Do you think she was worried that she had just given a year's wages to do nothing more than anoint Jesus before his death? I doubt she was worried about that. She probably thought Jesus was worth it and more if she could have mustered it. How much is Jesus worth to you? Again, time, talent, Money. How much are we willing to give to Jesus? How much are we willing to sacrifice? I'm not talking just about when the collection gets passed around. I'm not even talking about just giving money in general. How much are we willing to sacrifice to serve Jesus? Mary served him sacrificially. But Jesus says something wonderful about her too. He praised her because he said she has done what she could. That's what Jesus expects of us. Maybe she didn't do what John did or Peter did or what others did. Maybe she couldn't have. You know what she did do? She did what she could. Many of us have probably made the mistake of saying of doing nothing because we can't do what brother so-and-so does or as well as sister so-and-so does. And so we do nothing. Jesus isn't going to judge us for not doing what we couldn't do. He will judge us for not doing what we could. She had done a beautiful thing, Jesus says. That's a wonderful compliment. She has done a beautiful thing. Why? Because she did what she could. And thus, she was honored by Jesus. Jesus tells these disciples, who are led by Judas. Who has wrong motives. But somehow he gets according to Matthew and Mark. The other disciples stirred up too. And he tells them. He says you stop it. And you leave her alone. Because she has done a beautiful thing. He again vindicates Mary. Now again in both stories. That Mary is criticized. She says nothing. The only words we have from Mary. In the Bible. Or is that confession that she she made to Jesus. If you had been here my brother would not have died. Of this woman that the entire world knows about. That's ever heard the gospel. That's the only sentence that we know of her. Isn't that amazing that she didn't try and defend herself before Martha. She didn't try and defend herself before Judas and the disciples. She just served Jesus. And Jesus was her vindication. And he will be ours. I'm not saying we stand for the truth. We rebuke error. But when the world looks at us, mocks us, criticizes us, oppresses us, whatever. We don't have to convince the world of our rightness. We try and influence them and help them. And if they stand against us, that's their choice. Jesus will vindicate us on the day of judgment. Mary remained silent and was honored by Jesus. Here's another unique aspect of Mary. There is only one woman in all of the Gospels that received not one, but two compliments, two commendations from Jesus. And it's Mary, the only woman that twice Jesus commended her for what she had done. Silent, humble, Mary that we know very little about. And look at where she stands. And then Jesus honors her even more. He says, By the way, wherever the gospel goes, from this point forward, this woman's story will be told. Right alongside with Jesus' story, right alongside with James and John and all the other heroes of the faith and Paul, there will be simple Mary, who always chose to be at the feet of Jesus. And that's such an encouragement. Because when we honor the Lord, He will honor us. As we see Mary again, all three times at the feet of Jesus, we see her learning and listening. We see her grieving. We see her worshiping and serving. And they may be simple stories, they may be short, they may not give us all the details we would love to know about this woman, but they give us more than enough to encourage us in our own discipleship and our own following of the Lord. Are we willing to listen like Mary? Are we willing to choose the greater portion to follow Jesus? Are we willing to trust in the Lord even in the hard times, even when things don't go our way? Are we willing to listen, to trust, and to serve? Are we willing to worship, to humbly, sacrificially honor the Lord in our worship, in our lives, in our homes, in every way that we can? Mary provides such a wonderful example there at the feet of Jesus. And I hope she encourages every single one of us to seek that wonderful spot as well. To be at the feet of Jesus, to be his disciple, and to honor him through our lives, trusting that one day, just as he rose Lazarus in an example, one day he will raise us too to perfect eternal life, where we will get to sit at his feet throughout all eternity. And enjoy his glory with Mary, Lazarus, Martha, with the disciples, with all the other saints. What a day that will be when we can finally be reunited with our Lord who loves us and cares for us so much. I hope that that study has encouraged you in some way. And I hope it encourages all of us to be more like this wonderful woman. Whose story will continue to go forth until Jesus comes again. As we bring the study to a close have an opportunity to extend the invitation. Perhaps there's somebody here this morning who's not a Christian. You're not a follower of Christ. You have the opportunity to become one this morning. Hopefully, if you, if you don't know what it means to become a Christian, then let one of us know afterwards. But if you're here and you do know, and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you recognize that He has died for your sins, that He gave Himself for you, and that you're lost, And it's time to act upon that faith and repent of your sins. It's time to turn away from living for the world and choose to follow him. It's time to confess him as the Lord. And it's time to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you'll do that, then he will wash you, he will cleanse you. If you will listen to him and his word and obey him and trust in him, then he will honor you. And he will wash you and he will make you new. And you will become one of his disciples and a child of God. That great privilege can be yours today. Or if you are a Christian and you've turned away from the Lord, it's time to come back home. If you need to confess some fault before the congregation, then we would be happy to hear you and to pray with you and to pray for you so that you can be restored to the Father's home. And we would love nothing more than to assist you with that. But if there be somebody this morning that needs to make things right with God, we hope that you'll come while we stand and while we sing.